Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, Partisan Pizza, Jeff and I explore the nature of conservatism and progressivism by looking at pizza and other food preferences. We talk about the nature of category designations, what it means to call something by a specific name, and why this can sometimes feel so important to us. We look at our own preferences and inclinations towards conservative or progressive thinking, examine where they might come from, and how they are often dependent on context. We touch on the benefits of honing an existing process versus trying new techniques and methods, the importance and drawbacks of categories and categorization, and finally, how we might use an examination of our personal preferences about food to better understand the larger sociopolitical and cultural context in which we find ourselves. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, Partisan Pizza. So let's start with the fire pits I keep talking about that's been getting me through this pandemic. Uh, we had a fire pit, the English department from my school, and we invited a science teacher, and she tells me she's going to bring this pizza, and it's a Big Mac pizza. So I don't know what to expect, but of course I got to try it. There's a Big Mac pizza out there. Uh, that pizza has my name on it. So she shows up, and it's actually this beautiful creation down to almost every single detail. First of all, there's more meat than you have on your average Big Mac because it's spread across the crust. The lettuce was put on after cooking, so it's still there, and it's shredded just like you'd have on a Big Mac. The special sauce is drizzled across, and then if you look closely and you start to notice, the crust isn't a normal pizza crust. It's actually got sesame seeds layered across it, and I bite into this thing, fully happy to be trying this new thing, and it's delicious. It's better than the last Big Mac I had. It blows away this whole concept of the Big Mac to the point where I needed to have this pizza again. Uh, on my birthday during the pandemic in February, it's snowing outside. I don't want to drive up to the place. It's a town over. I like spent an extra $20 to have this pizza delivered through one of these delivery apps. And I, I completely felt like a jerk in making this other person go out and bring me the pizza. But I needed it for my birthday. And I also needed to try their other pizza, chicken and waffle pizza which is not quite as good, but is interesting and was worth trying. Since you're sharing a pandemic story, I think I'll share a pandemic story as well. You know, we weren't going out to get pizza. We don't eat out in restaurants a lot, but when we do, we go get pizza. We're fortunate to live right here near New Haven. We drive down to New Haven. We eat at Pepe's. We've discussed this ad nauseum in our lives. And so we couldn't do that. And I've been making pizza at home for a couple of years. You know, I bake bread. I'm into all that stuff. And so I started really honing my pizza process, right? So every week, basically without fail for, you know, pretty much a year, I would make dough. I would make the pizza. In that process, I've tweaked my recipe. I've bought some new equipment. And as I'm listening to you talk about 
Big Mac pizza and chicken and waffle pizza. I'm almost having a physical reaction like, okay, that's great. And I would probably enjoy that if I ate it. If you brought it over, I never turned down food. But something about it to me is going, yeah, but that's not pizza. Come on. Big Mac pizza. Like, what is this? And I spend all this time and I talk about this a lot with anyone who's willing to listen to me that in my mind, pizza is this perfect balance of dough baked into a crust and tomatoes and cheese, everything in the right proportions, the best of every possible ingredient tweaked just to the point where you can get the subtle nuances of the dough and and you can taste it and how everything blends together to make this perfect thing. And when it's perfectly baked and that's what I'm going for. And then the Big Mac pizza is like a sledgehammer to my sensibilities. And I don't think that my version of pizza is the right version, but it really makes me wonder, like, what does pizza even mean? Yeah, because if you look back at it, and because you bring up nuance, so you know I have to jump on that and go into it. The nuance of the history of pizza is something in and of itself, because your conception of pizza doesn't even really come around until tomatoes are introduced into Italy, and that's not until, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago. According to the 2021 CNN Travel article, How Italians Made Tomatoes Their Essential Ingredient, tomatoes were first brought to Europe by the Spanish when they colonized the Americas. It's an Aztec plant, as we can tell by its original name, tomato. By the mid-1500s, it had made its way to Italy. Nobody quite knows how. Some think the Sephardic Jews expelled from Spain in 1492 could have brought it with them. Or maybe it made its way over with Eleanor of Toledo, who came to Florence when she married the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Cosimo de' Medici, in 1539. Either way, by 1548, the tomato was to be found in Cosimo's botanical gardens in Pisa. But it wasn't yet on tables. The earliest recipe for tomato sauce was published in 1694 by Neapolitan chef Antonio Latini in his book Lo Scalco alla Moderna, The Modern Steward. It mentions that if you mix onions, tomatoes, and some herbs, you get a very interesting sauce that can be used in all sorts of things on meat, especially boiled meat, and things that aren't so tasty become more interesting with the acidity of the tomato. What pizza originally is when they first started calling it pizza varies when you look at it. The ancient Greeks had a thing called pizza, and then it grows up through time and turns into this eventually uh, Neapolitano pizza, which is uh, some other people's version. So your version of pizza is probably blasphemy to them in some way, shape, or form because they have their own conception of what is it. So what does this term pizza officially apply to? And So you're saying we can go too far in this category of pizza, that uh, there's a limit to it. Like, so the Big Mac pizza is beyond your limit of this signifier. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like on the edge because I think if you call it a Big Mac pizza, the idea is we're trying to recreate the Big Mac in the pizza. Um, Is that a pizza? I mean, I guess now you start to get into what does it mean to be in a category? So I think everybody would agree with pizza, right? It's got to be dough, sauce, and cheese. But then Sometimes there is no sauce. So like if you have a white pizza where it's just mozzarella and crust, is that a pizza? So, okay, so now we're down to, all right, maybe you don't need sauce. So is it just crust and cheese? And it's like, well, what if I just have a pizza where I just put tomatoes on it and I don't put any cheese, not even grated cheese? Well, now there's no cheese. So it's like, well, you got to have crust. So do we ever get down to the point where like we can truly define is, is pizza just a baked crust with nothing? I don't think anybody would say that that's a pizza. So what does it mean to be part of a category and why does it matter when When you talk about things, it communicates some sense of information. 
And I like to think that there's this platonic ideal of pizza. And in my mind, of course, it's my version of pizza, right? So what I make, which is probably closest to what you would consider maybe a hybrid of like a New York and New Haven style. The crust is pretty thin. The outer crust is crisp on the outside, but it's very airy and light on the inside. Not too much sauce, not too much cheese, perfectly cooked, not excessively topped. So I wouldn't say that Big Mac pizza is not pizza, but it doesn't fit my definition. I used to follow this guy all the time, Adam Kubin. He was a blogger from back in the day, and he used to have this blog called Slice. And he had this idea that he called the pizza cognition theory. And he says that the first slice of pizza a child sees and tastes becomes for him pizza. So it's like, do you remember your first slice? Uh, Where was it from? Is the place still around? And if so, does it hold up still? And I remember someone I used to know talking about her friend who was from Kansas, where like the only pizza she could ever get was Domino's pizza. And so like for her, she loved Domino's pizza and coming up here to the Northeast and us being like, oh, that's garbage. Not only does it offend probably somebody's sensibilities, but it's also like, is that even true? Right. And so I think about all these things. And ultimately, what are we talking about when we talk about pizza and why does it matter so much to us? My first slice was probably Sergio's, one of the multitude of Hamden pizzerias that make acceptable, good, not quite New Haven style, but quality pizza, as we would define it as people who grew up in Hamden. But I do love trying new things, and I am willing to accept a chicken and waffles pizza and try that as a separate entity or even as a pizza in and of itself. And I think this is the difference between my more humanity-centered mind at this point in my life and your science-centered mind. I think I'm good with fuzziness and language and metaphor. uh, And you love to categorize things way more than I do. I'm okay with broader categories, and that's just the difference between us. But when I went to Chicago for the first time and I tried Chicago-style pizza, even I was like, this doesn't even seem like a pizza anymore. And they do always put that extra added modifier of it being Chicago style. But to me, it was almost like a soup, a tomato soup in a bread bowl. That's what I thought of as Chicago style pizza. And I guess it was tasty, but my whole experience of it was almost ruined by the fact that my mind kept thinking, this isn't necessarily pizza. What is this? I guess I'm enjoying this, but it's a weird whole experience of eating this. Plus added into the fact that I come from New Haven area and we have a pizza and it's known as one of the best pizzas in the world. And I identify as a person from the New Haven area. It becomes a whole interesting discussion. Yeah, because I mean, obviously at this point, pizza is this worldwide food and it's made in all different kinds of ways and there's all different kinds of styles and a lot of them are really good, but people really get passionate about this. And I do too. I will speak about pizza again and again and again. I've had so many conversations about it and I I love the process of making it. And I think what it comes down to for me is my preference when it comes to pizza is relatively conservative. I value more the idea of taking a thing that's already established as a quality base item and then let's make that thing as good as can be. And to me, making it as good as can be isn't adding a whole bunch of crazy, weird variations to it. You know, I'll let somebody else do that. I want to take dough, sauce, and cheese and make that as good as I possibly can. And then I'll worry about all the other stuff after, like toppings and this and that. So I've spent all this time testing. Now I've got a stone in my oven and a piece of steel on top of that to shoot just the right amount of heat into the bottom of the crust. So I could cook it at 550 in six minutes. And it's the perfect amount of time to get the dough cooked perfectly without the toppings burning on the top. And like, this is how specific I am about this. And I've tweaked 
slightly. And that is a very scientific way to approach something, which you rightly bring up. Every time I'm doing the exact same thing and I'm controlling all the variables as closely as I can, and I'm changing one little thing to see if I could just tweak the outcome to get it a little bit more to my preference. And then, of course, what do I do? What, what word do I apply to that product? I say, this is a better version of the pizza than the one I made before. And so ultimately how I'm defining better is according to my own preference, you know, and it's just really interesting because again, it comes back to what do you value more? And so for me, it would be like offensive. You know, people will be like, well, do you make grilled pizza? Do you do this? Do you, do you put this on? I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't just take my pizza and cook it on a grill. My process is designed to cook in my oven. A grilled pizza would be an entirely different process, which would require me to make a different kind of dough, cook it in a different way. But I don't think most people think about it that way. But for me, I love that. I love the depth that you can get into with that one thing when you go deep on a process and really try to get it as good as you can get it. Yeah, and I guess in this discussion, I would be the food progressive. So I appreciate that, and I want to try this pizza that you've honed during the course of the pandemic, and I look forward to trying that, and I guarantee I'm going to love it, and I'm going to love it probably more than a lot of other pizzas that I've tried throughout time, but... If I also hear that there is a new place down the street that is serving a pizza that involves um, duck and uh, other things that I love uh, with a balsamic glaze and then uh, they put a pecorino melted lightly over top of it or something along those lines, pecorino and duck, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm trying to think about, that's just the first thing that popped in my head, but I, I'm, I've got to try that pizza too. And I'm, I don't know if I'm necessarily, I, the experience of eating your pizza is going to be awesome and it's, I, I know it's going to be good. I mean, I've got, we've known each other long enough to know each other's tastes and flavors and I'm going to trust your pizza. I look forward to trying it now that we could actually meet again. And that duck experience it might not be that great. I've never liked like a duck confit because I don't like duck when it gets crispy like that. I'm more of a rare duck breast kind of person. You know, it's one of my favorite meats. So I can see the duck maybe getting like that on the pizza and I can see other things happening to it that make it not exactly something I would love. But the act of going, the experience of trying, and then the fact that I don't like it is still awesome to me. That's a fine thing because I've had it. I've done it. I've tried it. I'm there. I could check it off. I could say, no, don't try the duck pizza at this place. I could go to you and I could be like, even though you're never going to try this duck pizza, it's not worth trying in the first place. I enjoy that whole process, even if it's not going to be better than this previous pizza. My mind loves knowing that I have tried it and know that it's not the better than. And for me, the idea of going somewhere and ordering something just to try it and then not liking it, that would be so disappointing to me. And I've had this experience before where I've been at a restaurant and I, I take a risk and I order badly and I'm so disappointed. And I think part of it is just the fact that I don't go out to eat a lot. I do most of my cooking at home. And when I do, I really want to maximize my experience according to my preference. And I get really excited about it. And there's always that first choice of, do I go to a new place or do I go to a place that I know I like? And then when I'm at the place, do I order a thing that I want to try or, you know, and, and sometimes you're going to a place because you've heard this is a new thing and you kind of know you're going to like it. I mean, this is, we've had this conversation, you know, this is where we come up with that, you know, always order the burger kind of idea where you're not going to go wrong with the burger. And if you're trying to choose between a burger and something that you not quite sure about, you know, you're probably going to be happy with the burger and you might be disappointed, but I think your tolerance for disappointment really plays into this a lot. So for me, my pizza, I am not tolerant of spending that time 
and then getting a product that I might or might not like. So I don't try a ton of new recipes. I do a lot of curation before I ever test one. So I know when I test that first recipe, I'm pretty sure I have some trusted sources and I I have a pretty good sense about these things at this point. I know it's going to be good. Then it's just a matter of I want to get it as good as I can because the idea that I'm going to spend any time at home to do this thing and then end up with a product where I'm like, eh, that wasn't as good as the one that I could already do. Like that's like, it's disappointing to me. Right. And so, uh, again, I think it really just speaks to my conservative tendencies where I want to, I want to take the thing that I already know is good and try to make it better as opposed to trying new things or, or I try new things in a way that's just very slow and small increments. Right. So it takes a long time. And I love the idea that you, I think this is one of the reasons why we've been good friends is that you will try many things and then say, you've said it to me many times, Darren, you don't need to try that. You don't need to try this. You don't need to try that. And then you bring me the things like this is worth trying. And I try it. I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm glad you are willing to experience all those failures and disappointments. Or maybe they're not disappointments for you so that I can then reap the benefits. Just do like the enjoyment of disappointment. I just want to speak to that just a second. I'm going to branch off of food just for a second. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but you, me, and I believe Sal went to see The Thin Red Line in the movie theater. I do remember seeing it. And we did not like that movie. I have to go back and rewatch it. I would probably like it now, but I think we saw it in college. We did not like that movie. And then we went to one of the multiple Athena diners that are around us, and we spent an hour plus talking about how much we didn't like that movie. And the funny part is now my experience of watching that movie is actually a positive experience because of the enjoyment of talking about how much we didn't like it. My wife and I had the same thing when we went to see a play. One of the first plays we saw at the Yale Rep, we hated this play. It was one of those plays that just pushed everything way too far, and by the end, somebody bit off somebody's tongue and spit it onto <laughs> the stage, and we were like, what is going on? I like postmodernism, but really? And we went to a little bar around the corner from the Yale Rep in New Haven. We had a pint of Guinness because it was an Irish pub and you got to have a pint of Guinness at an Irish pub, which is a conservative view of, of an ingestion. And we just talked about how awful that play was. But in the same moment, decided that we needed to get a membership to the Yale Rep and now go see five plays a year at the Yale Rep because they were willing to put on a play that awful because they're willing to push forward and try new things and see where this might head. So to me, a bad experience it can become a good experience in your own reaction to it and can help you refine and move forward and decide where you want to head in the future. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. You also just made me think of, and I'm not really prepared to talk about this, but I think it's Kahneman who talks about the experiencing self versus the remembering self. That's kind of exactly what you're talking about. It's like in the moment of experiencing it, a lot of things can be negative. A good example, we talked about it in the baseball episode very briefly at the end. You know, we had this pretty negative experience of going to a Yankee game. And we broke down literally on 87 South, about a mile away from Yankee Stadium. And we were stuck on the side of the highway at essentially rush hour in kind of a dirty and disgusting area. You know, we've got cars speeding by us. We've got all these plants. We've got a cooler full of sandwiches and beer. And we're going to go to the lot and tailgate. And it didn't happen that way. And in the moment, I think at times we, we kind of were laughing it off and we thought it was funny. And it, we didn't experience it as a terribly negative event. But now having that story and remembering it is way better than like just another, oh, I went into the baseball game and we watched it like we've already done, you know. And so it, it is kind of funny. Um, you know, we get a little off track there, but um, I think you're right in that having experiences 
good or bad, you know, however we want to talk about them, it's either evidence that confirms or disconfirms our hypothesis that we're running or our model about life. It's like, well, here's another thing I don't like. That's good information, right? And so I don't pursue that anymore. What I'm really kind of interested in, though, is why do we feel so compelled to defend these categories. And maybe you don't feel that compulsion at this point the same way that I do. And maybe it is contingent and contextual, right? Where we see this happen again and again and again, where people will have arguments about, you know, you brought up the Chicago, you know, Chicago pizza versus New York pizza is always a thing. And, you know, part of that is the bigger thing of Chicago, the city versus New York, the city, right? So like, what do you identify with more? But why does it matter? I'll bring it right back to ordering in restaurants, uh, which you brought up before, because I've made the mistake. And when you feel like the burger, order the burger. That's just the right move. But then there's the whole process of ordering the burger, because I, we have different theories on this, too. I think your theory would be that when you go to, so you go to specifically a burger joint, the first time you go to the burger joint, you should get the classic burger, you know, maybe lettuce, tomato, whatever you want, but ketchup but nothing too fancy on that. But then I see the list of the specialty burgers, and I can't help perusing this list and thinking about which one I should order. Uh, and then, and there's an interesting thing there, too, because that specialty list, sometimes if you go online and do a little bit of research, which we're prone to do before we even eat at a place, one of those specialty burgers may be the burger that that place is known for. And I'm way more likely to go for that specialty burger and not necessarily. So you want to get the scale of where did this burger joint fit compared to other burger joints. And I want to see what this place can offer me that other burger joints can't offer me is maybe one of the ways to look at it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think that it comes down to what are you looking to get out of the experience specifically, right? So for you, you might prioritize again, and we're getting back to this like progressive ideal of trying something new and different that this place can offer. Whereas the true quality to me is how you do the classic. So like if I go to a pizza joint and I want to try it out, I'm just going to get a pizza with a mozzarella cheese and sauce, red sauce. And I think pretty much everyone would agree that's a standard pizza, right? We've got crust, we've got tomato-based sauce, and we've got mozzarella cheese. And so that's what I want to try. And to me, if you can't master that, then anything else you're doing is probably just covering up the fact that, so is it a gimmick? Is it a, this? It, I kind of think of it as like a guitar with distortion almost, you know, it's like, I am not an excellent guitarist by any means, but I could plug in my electric guitar into my amp and turn the gain up and play an E chord and a G chord. And you will not hear me not fingering the notes exactly properly. You won't hear any of that subtlety or any of that nuance. So I, I think for me, what it comes back to with food specifically is I love, I love nuance and I love subtlety and I love being able to detect all the little notes. And I feel like, and maybe this is stereotyping or overgeneralizing, I feel like American food culture, at least for a long time, it's not subtle and it's not nuanced. It's just like, let's slather this with like the richest, fattiest thing we can, which is delicious, right? And there's evolutionary reasons for that. It's high calorie and, and all that stuff. And it's energy dense. And I like that. You know, I will certainly eat that food. But when I'm going to take the time to cook or when I'm going to go out and pay my money, what I really want most of the time is I want that experience of being able to know that the person who prepared this food understood the ingredients and understood how they were putting them together. And I just get into that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I have two word response to you. Jimi Hendrix. 
early distortion pedal, but also amazing nuance. The greatest guitarist of all time, right? Like on the list, whatever you want to debate that. And that's what I'm hoping for. Like I want to try this because it might be Jimi Hendrix. I want to try this pizza because it might be I'm, I'm, the Big Mac pizza is not Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> you know, but there's going to be that moment where in food creation, in this mass conglomeration of culture that we step forward, step back and have no control over, where somebody's going to put together a dish that is Jimi Hendrix. That is this amazing meal. For me, it's the meal that makes me close my eyes. Uh, I've had a couple meals like that in my life where I'm like, you know, this is new. This is different. I need to actually close my eyes, turn off other senses and just focus on what's happening right now. And that's probably what I'm going towards. That's one of the reasons I try and order new things. Yeah. The thing about Jimi Hendrix is funny because I thought of the guitar distortion example earlier today. I mean, I've thought about it many times, but I, I thought about it earlier today and it, it just came into my mind again. And I thought about Jimi Hendrix as the actual example of somebody who uses it. And, and again, what I would always say to something like that is, and I think we've had this discussion many times, Jimi Hendrix didn't start that way. Jimi Hendrix didn't start by plugging in and distorting his guitar. I mean, he was a pioneer of using that and then people imitated him but like now if i were to start that way what i miss is Jimi hendrix could play that damn guitar without the distortion you could see some stuff of him playing acoustically and stuff like that and he's a phenomenal guitarist without distortion i think what happens is if you lose the forms like you don't know those basics he should be able to play that guitar before he plugs it in and if you're truly great and if you truly want to be great and you know i i've seen this many times with guitar players, you know, even electric guitar players that say, you know, you need to practice without any of that stuff. Because if you're only ever playing that way, you don't hear any of your mistakes. You're covering everything up and you can't improve unless you're paying attention, especially once you, you know, if you think of the learning curve like that, like S-shaped. When you're a beginner, you can make big improvements. But as you get further up the curve towards mastery, you need to be paying attention now to the tiniest little differences so you can identify them and correct them if you want to keep getting, quote, better. And so, you know, I think there's a there's a balance there. And so what, what happens, I think, in time is you take someone like Jimi Hendrix, who now we're so far removed from him. And if I just listen to him and go like, I want to start with that. Well, what I'm missing is all the process that Jimi Hendrix went to to get to that. And so I'm, I'm missing something. Right. And I'm, I'm not Jimi. And, and, you know, Jimi Hendrix is, like you said, an all time legend. Jimi Hendrix spent a number of years honing his skills as a professional musician, backing up a number of U.S. acts on the Chitlin circuit during the early 60s, but he eventually chafed at having to play the same sets every night and the many other musical restrictions associated with being a sideman. By 1966, he had moved into New York's vibrant Greenwich Village music scene. However, he did not have much initial success attempting to go his own way and did not see any real recognition until arriving in London in the back half of 1966. Notably, it was another guitarist, Keith Richards, upon seeing him play in New York, who saw his early brilliance and eventually connected him with the London scene. Once there, it was notables such as John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Pete Townsend, many of whom were guitar masters themselves, that were among the first to truly recognize the nature of Hendrix's innovations on the guitar, how he blended virtuosic playing with diverse styles and experimental tones, and they almost immediately recognized the impact it would have on themselves and the burgeoning rock scene of the mid to late 60s. So to me, there's something about the process 
that is really important. And I think that's the conservative impulse in me. I want to value that process and emphasize that there's a process here and there is a way to get these outcomes. And before you start breaking all the rules, know what's come before you and understand what you're doing. And I 100% agree with you on that. Because I think one of the big differences in this discussion is I am way more of a food consumer than a food producer, but you are a producer in certain categories, in bread and in pizza in particular, you you know, you make that food, you invest in that food. So in my chef that I'm going to try and see if they're making this new thing and see how wonderful this new thing can be and see if they're the Jimi Hendrix, I want that chef to know the basics of cooking. I want that chef to have been through the whole process. I think with a pizza joint, it's slightly different. But if I'm going to a fancy restaurant in New York and it's like one of these crazy ones, which even my, this might go too far, uh, molecular, what's it called? Oh, molecular gastronomy. Yeah, if I'm going there, it needs to be a chef that checks all the boxes. It needs to be a guy who like went to a culinary school where they taught him like the French style of cooking, where he learned all these different styles of cooking. It can't just be some dude that suddenly decided to take a flamethrower and like put it to sugar and melt it on top of this and call it ice cream on spoon or something weird like that. Because I mean, I'm a huge fan of modernist art and modernist art is crazy and absolutely but if you look at all those modernist painters, they have paintings at the beginning of their career that are beautiful, wonderful, normal, non-abstract paintings. These are talented guys. They just didn't suddenly sit down and say, I'm going to suddenly put this color red box over here and this black box over here, and I'm going to say number 27 and put it up in an art museum. There's a whole thought process and history and talent, and they're all trained and they're all great artists. There's something there. It's not just out of the blue. I don't like the just out of the blue gimmick. I don't like pumpkin spice flavor. I, if you're just <laughs> going to throw pumpkin spice into anything, you're not Jimi Hendrix. Like Jimi Hendrix is nuance and distortion mixed together. I want that in my food. I don't want pumpkin spice because we don't know how to make real coffee i don't want something like that or i mean i'd even say i don't want the hawaiian pizza i don't want don't throw pineapple on my pizza and tell me it's new i have so many thoughts uh, about what you're talking about i mean i feel the same way about bacon quite honestly where you know everybody bacon makes everything better it's like no it doesn't you know bacon is really good it's good by itself it's good with some classic things and it's good in certain ways but it's not automatically better and you know what bacon primarily does when you overuse it? It makes everything taste like bacon. Well, when I eat a cheeseburger, I don't necessarily want it to taste like bacon. Sometimes I'm in the mood for a bacon cheeseburger, and then I want bacon. But even then, I don't want to not be able to taste the beef, the cheese, and all the rest of the stuff. So there is some balance. And I think you really did hit on something there with the production versus consumption aspect of things. I do think when you start creating a thing— even if you're innovating on a theme, whether it be a specific food like bread or pizza or larger cultural product like an entire cuisine or musical style, you're engaging in a process and you develop, quote, rules and procedures for how it's done, even if they're only in your mind. Um, but the more you do it in your life, the more you want to preserve that process. And then when someone else comes in and says, can you do it this way instead? Why not do it that way? I, I think if you identify with your process and your product, you're, you're going to feel that conservative impulse a little bit more. I mean, if you've been doing a thing for 20 years, even if you were 
progressively innovating 20 years ago. Now, all of a sudden, there are going to be a new generation of people coming in and iterating on your idea or maybe even questioning your expertise. And you want to say, no, this is the way it is. You can do it that way, but that's not this. And then if you throw maybe different cultural groups or ethnicities or nationalities or other identities into the mix, it becomes like, no, this is how we make this dish. And anything else is either misappropriation or it's not the real authentic thing or it's not doing honor to all the history and cultural knowledge behind the product. And even if you could go back in time to when that thing was not what it is today for that group, it still feels like a more long-standing thing to the people that are involved in doing it. And this is, I think, what I'm talking about, getting back to that nuanced idea where no matter what you're doing, even if you're going to do Big Mac pizza, what I want is I want a chef who loves Big Macs and loves pizza and wants to treat it like I'm going to I'm going to really try to blend these two things because I think I can really do it really well. So I think of somebody like Kenji Lopez, who I love, is like one of my food heroes who would try to do a thing like that, but then would go through these amazing lengths to treat everything as if he was producing a $300 a plate dinner, but except he's making a Big Mac pizza. You know, I think the trouble that you and I get into, even though you're a lot more progressive minded than me with this, is if you're not that person, that's just I think sometimes learning the forms restricts you. It is important, I think, to know in some sense what outcome you're going for. Like for me, when I'm making pizza, I know exactly what I want to get. So I'm working towards something. And there's a way to do that, not to get too specific, but like the amount of water in your dough, for example, it matters. Could I, by luck, produce the pizza I want without knowing that? Yes, I could. But then I'm not going to be able to reproduce it. I have no idea what I did, you know. But at the same time, I do think there is some level of serendipity and there is something to be said for people who they don't know they're breaking rules. And because they don't know that, they actually will do a thing that like I'm in a box that sometimes is very hard for me to get out of. And because of that, I'm missing the boat in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, speaking to like this larger idea of culture, uh, the essence of progressivism is trying a bunch of new things, regardless of what's happened in the past. And maybe for every hundred failures, you have a few big hits. And that's what makes culture and societies and civilization dynamic and enables progress. But at the same time, in its best sense, conservatism says that we don't need to throw everything out and start from scratch all the time. Anytime somebody says something like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, that's a conservative impulse speaking, right? We have a process, we have a product, we have a thing that works. We can also focus on making that thing better. And yeah, let's try to dump stuff that doesn't work and let's keep trying new things. But let's not forget that the reason we have the culture and the modern civilization that we have is because of a mass collective shared knowledge that is continually passed down from generation to generation. So we don't need to constantly be rediscovering hundreds of thousands of years of knowledge. The impulse to conserve is to maintain that over time. So progressivism, conservatism, they're both necessary forces, right? They interact and they counteract and they both in their best possible versions help to make our aesthetic experience of life better. Do you see kind of like what I'm saying there? I completely see what you're saying. Well, I'll go back to myself as a cook, as the perfect model of where the balance goes off. Because what I like about the balance is kind of what I said before about that's what I want in my chef. I don't want my chef to just be throwing things together because that's what I used to do. Like the bacon example to me, uh, when you said that, it sparked some memories of when I started as a cook and I thought I was a good cook. But I wasn't a good cook. I didn't know any of the basics of cooking. I just watched the Food Network and then I'd suddenly start throwing crap together and ended up with some really bad dishes because I thought I like blue cheese. So I thought I could put blue cheese in anything. 
blue cheese does not go in hardly any dishes and it does not fit well. And several plates of food sat in front of my wife untouched because of my blue cheese obsession. You can't just sit there and throw everything in. So you can't have a progressive sense of mind all the time. If you're just stuck in a progressive sense of mind, especially as a producer of things that are supposed to be of high quality, you're going to end up with a lot more failures than you should have. Like failing is good, but you shouldn't fail 99% of the time. And you can't just get stuck in the conservative state of mind because if you just get stuck in the conservative state of mind, then our pizza wouldn't even have tomato sauce on it. It would just have pork fat rubbed on bread or something, whatever that early pizza is. So you have the blending of the two of them and then adding a little bit of conservatism into the way you learn something is a really important thing, especially for me as an educator. Where I would label myself most conservative, oddly enough, is as a teacher. I kind of feel like that's part of my job almost, to not let progressivism just go off the charts and to add in a little bit of this history to it. And what I want to try to understand is why are we inclined one way or the other? How does this impact our lives? How does this impact our interactions with other people? You know, so we're using food because I think it's a great example and I think it's really relatable. But just this whole idea of openness to new things. And so I was reading this article in The Atlantic, shockingly. It's called The Happiness Benefits of Trying New Things. And So this is a quote from the article talking about something called neophobia versus neophilia, which is basically a fear of new things versus loving new things. Openness to a wide variety of life experiences from visiting interesting places to considering unusual political views brings happiness. Openness, also known as neophilia, is strongly positively associated with happiness. Of course, you can push this too far, becoming chronically disgruntled without a constant stream of novelty or turning into a danger addict, always searching for the next extreme experience. True happiness comes from a healthy, balanced neophilia that cultivates a love for the adventure of life. Neophilia is correlated with happiness insofar as it is associated with extroversion, and extroversion strongly predicts happiness. But neophilia also causes happiness because it is an engine of interest, which, according to the research psychologist Carol Izzard, is one of the two basic positive emotions, the other being joy. It is highly pleasurable to have your interest peaked, which naturally happens when you're exposed to new things. Neophiliacs thus stimulate this positive emotion more frequently and intensely than neophobes. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but it's interesting, and I think it speaks a little bit to what you were saying. Sometimes it's good to try new things, and sometimes it's good to maybe hold back a little bit. Being neophobic, like literally being afraid to try new things, would really constrict the range of experiences that you could have in life. And as we've talked about many times, subjective experience is an awesome, beautiful, amazing thing, and it, for me, is kind of what makes life worth living. And so to close myself off to those experiences would be a bad idea. But there's this idea of the big five personality traits. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah, from you. It's this idea that everybody is somewhere on a spectrum on these five traits, and and sometimes some versions they add six or seven. Um, Extroversion, agreeableness, openness to experience, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. And it's a spectrum. It's not like you are conscientious or you're not. But when it comes to openness... To experience, you have at one end people are, are extremely inventive or, and curious, and these would be you know, the more progressive-minded people. And then at the other end, people who are very consistent and cautious. So the thing about me is, depending on the context, I could go either way. I remember the first time I tried sushi, and I was so excited to try it. I was like, I know, I really want to try this, and I love sushi. It's great. And I'm so glad that I tried it, and I'm so glad I wasn't like, oh, fish, because I would have closed myself off to that experience. But what is it that 
it's probably a mix, but it's probably something about our cultural upbringing and our genetics, right, that ultimately kind of place us on that spectrum. Do you think like you can change that or do you think you kind of just are where you are? Can you make yourself more open to experience if you just find that you're not very open to experience or are you just always going to be the hamburger order at the restaurant? So just back to that piece written in the Atlantic, I'm with you on this. I don't 100% agree with this and I am a neophiliac and the word that really strikes me in this is interest and I love being interested in things. We've talked before in this podcast of like the point in my life where I decided to be interested in things. And this is one of the things I feel like I try to instill into my high school students to be interested in things. And there is a way to be interested in new things and find new things and go do that. And that's what I do. But like you said, it depends on what kind of neophobic you are. You're a neophobic who has an interest in something. And you've been talking about this interest through the course of this whole episode. And that interest is an interest in a history of something. And preserving, and we've talked about this before. I'm almost stealing this from you. Uh, well, you're you're also stealing it from me because this is how I talk about when I talk about culture. That interest is an interest that's five thousand years deep, maybe longer, ten thousand years deep. And it's so awesome to tap into that interest. For me, it's awesome to read Gilgamesh and tap into that interest. For you, you're creating a piece of bread whose recipe may be literally five thousand years old. You could talk about sourdough starters at some point in time and ones that are hundreds of years old in San Francisco. So you're tapping into you can call it neophobic, you can call it conservative, but it's this larger thing that stretches through time and you like to see where it comes from and we talk about this word nuance when we talk about this and you like to have these little tweaks about it and in that moment it's kind of like the average person sitting in front of a fire and you feel this strange connection to our history when you see that fire burning like caveman days or whatever but you're doing it in this more uh, you know specific and scientific way and how bread comes together and what levels of water that's I mean, call it neophobic, but that's awesome. And aren't you happy when that's happening? Aren't you happy when you're making that bread? I mean, you've done it for years now. You must be happy when you're doing that. And you're certainly happy when you create a product that's like, this is pizza. Yeah, I love the process. I, I really do enjoy doing it. And I don't know if conservative and neophobia in this sense are quite exactly the same thing. I'm thinking more along the lines of almost being afraid of new things. I don't want to try anything new because I'm so fearful that something bad is going to happen. I don't think that's exactly the situation that I'm in with bread. You know, it's funny because the whole reason I even started baking bread is because I love sandwiches so much. One of the things that I like to say that kind of encapsulates my personal philosophy is life is too short for a bad sandwich. And, you know, again, this gets to my preference for really maximizing every experience that I have according to my preferences, right? So I prefer experiences that are maximized according to my preference. And I would guess I'm not that different than other people in that. I think maybe how I'm different is the extent to which I will go to maximize those preferences, right? I learned how to bake bread because I love sandwiches, and I found that the one place where sandwiches frequently fall down is bread. It's hard to get good bread. And so I was like, well, if I can't get good bread consistently, I'm going to learn how to make it. And this was probably over 10 years ago at this point. And now I'm the guy who makes bread. You know, like I make bread. I bring the bread. We're going to your house. You need bread? Yeah. You need challah? You need rye? You need, what do you need? I'll make the bread, you know, uh, and... I do that because I enjoy the product. And I, like you said, I love tapping into that long cultural history. And I love the idea that it's a mastery thing that like I could do this now for my whole life and I could get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better um, by doing the same thing over and over and over. It's almost kind of like a Zen kind of experience. Like I do the same exact thing again and again and again, but 
I get a little bit better. And it's almost like this flow experience where I don't have to think about it too hard anymore because I've thought about it so hard in the past and now I've made it routine. That's just a way that I am. Like, I don't know how to not be that way. I could very easily see somebody else going, ah, it's not worth all that effort for just bread. You know, this bread's good enough. And to me, that offends my sensibilities that somebody would be like, nah, I'll just use this bread. And I get why you would do that. But why am I not like that? I think the beauty, and this is just our friendship as as a good example of it, is I would say, just responding to the quotation, you don't necessarily need to change from being a neophobic. Just find a neophilic person who's a friend, and they'll naturally uh, introduce you to either new experiences or more inline experiences that don't change as much. Because coming back to the big five personality traits, I don't love anything that really puts down a personality into a certain category and sticks you in that category. Um, Coming back to the question you asked, I really think that, and this is a farther discussion that I want to eventually get into, I've really come to realize that the idea of self, I think it exists. I think we create a self. I have a whole philosophy that's developing around this, but I think this self is a constantly drifting self. I think what the illusion is that the self is ever a singular thing, a constant story that you keep telling yourself, this is who I am. And so myself can be in one of these categories at any given state and time, but myself can also change depending on the context of the situation. Because I would say there's, there's instances where you and I, again, using us as evidence, you and I together, where you would pull me more towards the more conservative areas of this, and and that would be an enjoyable moment in there. And then there are other instances where I would pull you into a different category of self or a different personality trait, and you would sway more that way. Five personality traits, I don't mind that. I'm sure there's a ton of research that fits into it, but I guess... I just like more of the idea of any one of these types of things is just a spectrum. And I assume the people who write about this probably talk about it in this way, where you flow into the spectrum through certain things and aren't always locked into this one state of being. Yeah, well, I think the whole idea of it is that they are each a spectrum. It's a range and it is contextual and it is contingent. And as you're saying that, I asked you a question that I can answer, which is why am I like that? And I can't answer the why am I like that? It's obviously some combination of genetics, anecdotal life experience, you know, culture, all that stuff. Like we know the general answer. But just think about another thing that I love, which is music. And you and all my friends listen to music and I am constantly listening to new bands. And I'm like one of the only people I know that does that. Most people that I know have at this point in their lives and we're in our 40s, they know what they like and they go back and they listen to the stuff that they know they like already. Like in musically, I'm like completely the opposite. I get great joy in finding a new album. I found one last week, this guy, Jimmy Montague, an album called um, Casual Use. And I listened to it probably 20 times already. And this is a guy who just recorded this album in his house during the pandemic in his apartment. He had some people play horns on it. It's like a mix of all these different styles. It's a little poppy. It's piano based. It's cool. It's really cool music. And I don't know very many people that would do that just in my own personal life. Obviously, there's a lot of people who consume new music. So in that, I'm an extreme neophiliac. I'm always making this choice when I listen. I know there's a million things I could listen to that I know I love, but I almost always choose to listen to things that are new over the stuff that's, and then I listen to the stuff that's old when I'm around other people and it's not the right time to introduce them to something new. But then I love introducing people to new music. Sometimes I'll just slip it on in the right moment. You know, we're already kind of in this genre and maybe I could turn you on to something new. 
it is a somewhat subtle difference here compared to my opinion on pizza. Um, for one, I'm not nearly as proficient with creating music as I am bread or pizza, and I'd still consider myself more of a music consumer than a producer. But even though what I tend to listen to can usually broadly be classified in the genre of rock and its you know myriad subgenres and offshoots and the things it's subsumed like um, folk and country, etc., uh, I'm very loose about how I define rock. It doesn't have to be four-piece, drums, guitar, bass, lead singer. I'm open to people bringing in jazz influences and pop sounds and synths and electronic elements and all kinds of experimental stuff. I mean, my favorite artist is Bob Dylan, who is largely looked at as an innovative rule breaker who kind of famously subverted folk traditions, right, by, quote, going electric and was widely considered a blasphemer by the hardcore conservative folkies at the time. Um, and because what he was doing was not folk music. And, and I like that and I seek that out. And I'm not really upset when someone adds something new to whatever the established formula is in the way that I am much more conservative about pizza. So it's not that I won't try new pizza restaurants or recipes, but I'm looking for a very specific style. And I know ahead of time it's going to be good before I ever go there or try the recipe because of my ultra careful curation process, whereas I'll just throw on an album, you know, um, I'm much more inclined to see a place doing something like that's out there as a gimmicky thing to get you in the door. But I want to know that you can do the tried and true basics. I'm, I'm really looking for that. And again, it's just a different context and I approach it in a completely different way. This is beautiful how this is coming around. Uh, we didn't even necessarily plan this, but we talk about the ways we label food and what exactly is pizza. And then we come around to labeling people. I always have a large concern in labeling people in any way, shape, or form, even when it's something as simple as neophobic or neophilia, because you're just finding out like, wait, I'm a neophobic when it comes to pizza, but I'm neophilic when it comes to music. And then because I would be neophobic with music, but not really. I'm only neophobic with music because I don't have the time to search it out. So I just use you to find my new music nowadays. And then labeling people under these five personality traits. You know, I'm not always a Big Mac pizza. Like you can't label me just a Big Mac pizza. Like I said before, I want to try the pizza that you've honed during the course of this. And I love Pepe's. And I have an order. We have a family order at Pepe's. We get the white broccoli. We get pepperoni. And we get the, and this is the one where I push my Pepe's a little bit further than you. We get the shrimp with roasted red peppers, which you would probably even argue that's stretching the limits of where the Pepe's ordering should go. Do you get it red? Uh, yes, we get it red. Yeah, see, actually, that's where I would be like, red and shrimp? Ah. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's amazing how it all buns together, especially the roasted red peppers done in their ovens. Oh, my God. It's like an explosion. It's kind of an overload, but it's like a... I bet it's delicious. Uh, yeah, it's an overload done to the highest level. Of, uh, it's Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. You know? I, and that's, that's not a bad analogy. Peppies and Jimi Hendrix, that's yeah. comparable. It's fair. Labeling food is a different category. It's not like labeling people, obviously. But I love seeing everything as a spectrum, I guess. I love seeing how far can I push the spectrum of this pizza or any other food to see if this new experience is going to be something wonderful for me. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, I think the trouble with labeling people is you then become constrained by the label. If you start thinking of yourself as like, I'm a person who's not open to experience or, or you know, I guess it could work both ways, though. You, If you start to think that way, maybe you, you might intentionally then say, oh, you know what, I'm going to try some new things, you know, like Leah, my daughter. At the beginning of this year, one of her New Year's resolutions, which, you know, I'm not a big resolutions person, but she decided she was going to try more new foods this year. 
I'm assuming she made some conscientious choice. Like I'm aware of the fact that I eat the same things and I have these preferences. I'm going to try some things that maybe I wouldn't try. And I think that that's a good realization to have. I think the idea of the big five that I kind of, you know, so what I like about this one is the fact that it's a spectrum and it is contingent and it does recognize that people are fluid and they move along these things as they have more life experience in specifically speaking to the idea of categorization. I just wonder, though, if that's a thing we can get away from as people, because I think essentially that's how your brain works. It creates categories and then it puts things in categories and it's essentially a large processor that is for categorization and that's how it makes sense of the world. So when we encounter a new thing, your brain is struggling to put it into a category. And that's why from a learning standpoint, we always say like we're supposed to try to attach new learning to old learning because it allows your brain to properly categorize, you know, whatever it's trying to do and all this stuff is happening. And so I wonder if there's just something about us that like we're never going to escape categories. And no matter how hard we try, we're always going to think it because still we're not going to call hamburgers pizza, right? Pizza is pizza and hamburgers are hamburgers. So, you know, categories are useful in that sense. Yeah. And I, I don't think we should completely ever get rid of categories. When you think about larger culture, there needs to be this communication between us. I mean, and this is like a bigger issue with just language in general. You know, postmodernists looked at this idea, some people think too far so, the idea that language is fuzzy and that like when I say car to you, it, you have this whole, the, the platonic view of car. Uh, your first car probably pops into your head, probably the Honda Accord. The gold Honda Accord, is that when I say car, is that the car that pops in your head? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sedan, definitely, right. that pops into my mind when you say car. It's not a SUV or a, you know. So we need that category of car because I need to be able to say to you, car, you know, go get the car. Or we need that category of food because I need to say to you, you want to go get burgers? You want to go get pizza? You want to go get this? And then I can't say you want to go get pizza and we show up at a burger joint. Like there needs to be this communication in this category. I mean, you could you can completely see the evolutionary necessity of having the category and being able to communicate the category. It's just fun to look at the fuzziness. I, that's why I'm a fan of the original nuanced awesome thinkers of postmodernism and how they look at the fuzziness in this. I like looking at that, although it can give you a little bit of a headache. Larger culture in general needs categories, needs conservatism, but larger culture in general also needs people to be looking at the spectrum between the categories and ways to make things, I'm not going to use the word better, but uh, make things different, possibly in a good way. I think that that's a good way to think about it. It's funny because the big categories, we can all agree. And then I think what happens is we get caught up in our version of things. And maybe we can't even agree on the big categories. Uh, you know, uh, if you take something like food, for example, uh, you know, we live in the United States and there are certain things that we code as food and not food. So, you know, we don't eat, uh, you know, horse and we don't uh, tend to think of insects as food. But, you know, you go somewhere else and they don't view it the same way. You know, we had this conversation in the baseball podcast to go back to that one again, you know, where we talked about Yankee Stadium and like my Yankee Stadium is this version. And I think what we need to understand is that culture, especially cultural products, are in constant flux and constant conversation with one another. And there's always an evolution. So there is no point in time that you could ever go back to and freeze it and go, this is the authentic culture. This is the authentic product. 
you know, you, you can get to a point where you want to define a specific thing. So I think about like true Neapolitan pizza, right? Where like you could get a designation and there, Italy is big on this. There's like all these regional certifications, you know, like if you're going to call it this, it can only come from this area. It has to be this. There are a few different designations for Italian food products, but the most stringent is the denominazione di origine protetta, translated to protected designation of origin and abbreviated DOP. According to the Italy website, quote, this designation guarantees that your favorite cheese, prosciutto, olive oil, etc. is produced, processed, and packaged in a specific geographical zone and according to tradition. Each step from production to packaging is regulated. And this matters simply because, quote, beyond saving ancient traditions, the product actually tastes better. It's true. There is a reason why Prosciutto Toscano DOP is made with pigs raised in the hills of a set zone and grazed on local grasses, then cured at precise temperatures with a secret recipe of local herbs. The prosciutto tastes delicious. It tasted delicious centuries ago when the methods were defined and perfected. It tastes delicious today, and it is guaranteed to taste delicious in centuries to come. And furthermore, that... Quote, the need for guaranteed authentic products began in the mid-1900s when Italy's food and wine producers found themselves in trouble. As Italian cuisine gained popularity in the U.S. and abroad, the market was flooded with low-quality knockoff olive oil, cheese, prosciutto, and wine, all sold under the guise of the high-quality products they mimicked. To protect its culinary reputation, Italy worked with the European Union to create legal certifications that encourage food and wine producers to focus on quality, tradition, and reliability. To earn the labels, producers must adhere to a strict set of guidelines overseen by the government. You can get certified and say, like, our pizza is real Neapolitan pizza. And what that means is you're following this, like, you know, 15-page document of rules about everything from how much water is in the dough to how you cook it to what kind of wheat you use to how you sprinkle the cheese over the top of the pizza in a circular motion. And it never – and, like, it probably seems so insane to somebody who's, you know, not initiated into this process. But, you know, it's the only way to produce this product exactly this way. So, again, it's, you know, conserving this tradition and, and ensuring that if you're going to call it – Neapolitan pizza that it's going to be representative anywhere in the world where this product is being produced. Um, one of the things I came across that inspired my thinking about this episode was this controversy that happened a few months ago when the New York Times published a recipe for, quote, smoky tomato carbonara. Uh, and of course, notably carbonara, which is an Italian dish consisting of just four ingredients, uh, egg, pecorino, cheese, uh, pork in the form of uh, guanciale and uh, black pepper and does not have tomatoes at all. And you can make an argument that one of the defining features of the dish is their absence to the point where adding tomatoes makes it something else entirely. Um, So here's a bit from an article called Stop This Madness. New York Times angers Italians with smoky tomato carbonara recipe. Quote, the recipe published by New York Times Cooking was prefaced by saying that tomatoes are not traditional in carbonara, but they lend a bright tang to the dish. But it wasn't just the tomatoes. The recipe replaced guanciale with bacon. Quote, since it's widely available and lends a nice smoky note and used Parmesan cheese instead of pecorino. The indignation began among passionate foodies on social media. Quote, this isn't remotely close to being carbonara. Stop this madness, wrote one, before attracting the ire of top Italian chefs and the Farmers Association, Coldaretti, which described smoky tomato carbonara as the tip of the iceberg in the falsification of traditional Italian dishes. 
This isn't the first time an interpretation of an Italian recipe has sparked outrage, with foreigners often mocked for adding pineapple to pizza or chicken to pasta. But that the recipe was published by the New York Times came as a shock. Quote, I follow the New York Times on Instagram and thought it was a fake. Alessandro Papero, a chef in Rome known as the Carbonara King, told Corriere della Sera, it would be like putting salami in a cappuccino or mortadella in sushi. Okay, fine, but then let's not call it sushi. Similarly, with this one, carbonara with tomato is not carbonara. It's something else. Coldoretti was sterner in its reaction. The real risk, the association said in a statement, is that a fake made-in-Italy dish takes root in international cooking, removing the authentic dish from the market space and trivializing our local specialties, which originate from unique techniques and territories. So I'll put all the relevant links in the show notes, but I find myself to be pretty sympathetic to this view. I mean, carbonara has to mean something, and at some point, it becomes something else. And so, like, we can take that and define it and say, this is what this is. And nothing else can be called this unless it's this, because that's really what categories are, right? It's like you have to meet these criteria to be this category. And I, th- and I think what happens is when we identify with one particular category so strongly, we're like we can't even recognize that, all right, some variation of this has value too, is when we get into trouble, right? And so now we bring this out broader. And now do we really want to be fighting over what is pizza and what isn't pizza. I don't think that that's very productive. It's good to have all this variety, right? So then you can maximize your individual preference. But I also think the conservative me says it's good to also have to know what these words mean. So when you're ordering pizza and you show up with Chicago style deep dish pizza, I'm going to be like, uh, I thought we were getting pizza. What happened? You know, like, because the communication piece, it's important, right? The words, the concepts communicate some information. So I think that there's like that tug back and forth between making the terms more inclusive by being progressive or making them more exclusive by being more conservative and trying to say, no, it's this very specific thing and this is what it is. In a funny way, we didn't, it's not intentionally, the episode is not intentionally structured as an analogy in this way in any shape or form. It's just a fun discussion about how we view food. But in a weird way, you could look at this episode as what we talk about politics part three, uh, if you wanted to look at it like an analogy to it. And I just wanted to bring that up because I've just finished a Madison bio. You know, I'm kind of going through the founding fathers. I was on Jefferson, I think, during our last episode. And Madison came up with this idea. So there was all these arguments against a republic being too large. Because if a republic is too large, it would never be able to hold as a whole. It would fall apart because you'd have too many different views and you're allowing them to be expressed because it's a republic and people are being represented. But Madison, who read Aristotle and all the Greeks and all the ideas and read extensively about every republic before him, and I believe it was Hume, uh, David Hume, who finally pushed him towards this idea because Hume had a similar type of idea, actually said that a republic should be large. And he said basically that each of these different voices, whether it's a voice talking about Chicago-style pizza, whether it's a voice talking about New Haven-style pizza, whether it's a voice talking about this style pizza, are going to balance and cancel each other out. And then in a large republic, you would be able to truly hold together around this one larger singular concept, you know, America in Madison's case, and have all these different voices in a unified For him, it was a government or unified view of food for us right now. I'm glad you did go there because to me, the whole idea of exploring conservatism versus progressivism with something like food is 
to me like a proxy for exploring it in context like the political context, for example, because I think it's a low stakes way to understand that sometimes I'm conservative and sometimes I'm progressive and both are good and both are necessary. And when they're working best, they can balance each other, you know, so to go back to like, uh, I don't know, I think it's Aristotle, the middle way, right? So like these, these extremes and sometimes extremes can be good and sometimes extremes are necessary to dislodge a log jam or something like that. But more frequently, context matters and you are not a conservative person and you are not a progressive person necessarily all the time everywhere. And I think there is something about cultural products that once they're developed, anything from art styles or cuisines to types of government or really anything that can be associated with a group, small to large, uh, as big as a nation or a people, an ethnicity, a religion, an enclave, you know, whatever group you want to pick. Once people start to identify with that product or process in that group, the idea of conserving it becomes much more complicated because at some point, someone from outside or maybe even someone inside the group wants to take that idea and tweak it or change it. And then it becomes almost a defensive thing where now the identity of the group is at stake or it needs to be defended. Um, This is the way we do it becomes this is the way it is done. And anything outside of that threatens to dilute or misrepresent that cultural product. So there's always this back and forth between preserving what already exists and taking what's been done and changing it in some way. And sometimes it matters who is doing it. And then we get into concepts like being inclusive or exclusive, elitist or democratic, and who is actually in control of any of this. And a lot of times it does come down to power, where if I have some knowledge and I'm also able to define this is the way it is and enforce that and you can't do it that way or that way is wrong, it does become in some sense political. Um, Whereas some people might see a loss of their culture or way of life, others see it as a democratization or staking a claim to their own right to define cultural norms, values, etc. So if I've invested years into making bread and you come along and claim that knowledge for yourself or say that your way is just as good or your new way is better or you want to call it you know, what you do the same as what I do without going through the same process and acquiring the same level of, you know, mastery and cultural knowledge, you know, it triggers me to want to defend my particular practices because they're wrapped up with my identity. And loss aversion is a powerful psychological phenomenon. We live in the present and arrive in the world whenever we do. And we don't actually recognize how much some things do change and have actually changed over time. So we misperceive the way it is now as being the way it must have always been, which adds to that uh, conservative impulse as well. And I think this idea, because one of the things we talk about all the time is really let's try to understand things better and let's understand context and let's understand nuance and let's understand. And, and I think this is a good way to kind of get at it and go like, well, what are you? You know, you, you think of yourself as a progressive person. Well, let's really examine that. Do you have any areas of your life where you're a little more conservative or vice versa, right? Um, and so th- I started thinking of this in these terms specifically because I always thought of myself like politically more as like a progressive kind of person. And then I just 
extended that out to the rest of my identity, like, oh, I must be progressive. And then I started thinking about the stands I take on things like, you know, pizza and bagels. And I'm like, damn, I am super conservative in these contexts. I wonder how that bleeds over in general into the larger bits of my life. And I like to be reflective and I like to think about that and I like food. And so, you know, this is a natural thing, you know, and uh, it's really an enjoyable conversation, but food is a really good way to get at some of the deeper things of life, right? If you want to talk about outcomes versus process, or you want to talk about paying attention to detail, or you want to talk about nuance, or you want to talk about, uh, you know, relationships or nourishment or sustaining ourselves, you know, like food is a great way to explore that. So, you know, this has been a really great conversation. It just brings up this thing. We, we keep getting close to this idea uh, or keep just mentioning this idea of like how to bring uh, people together more. Like I keep coming, I have this church that I'm eventually going to introduce this concept of a church you may form. But just the idea, and I feel like I read this somewhere, probably in the Atlantic, but I, I have fun finding this when you're putting the notes together. But it's just the idea of like sitting down to a dinner. Uh, we don't do that even anymore. So even just sitting down to a dinner with a long table of people who maybe don't agree on any spectrum. And we're so afraid to like, oh, there's going to be the political discussion over the dinner. But sitting down, talking about the food with each other and eating and enjoying that moment. Like this president, Jefferson used to do this. He would just have a table, he have food, he have people sitting around it. People from the house would come and they would sit and talk and eat and enjoy Madeira wine. It goes back to the whole Barrett idea of having the kids play soccer with each other from Israel and Palestine to share this new experience. Sit down and have food with each other. Break bread. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love cooking. I love doing it because I love eating, but I also love sharing that product with other people. And and to me, focusing on the process is my way to show the people that are around me that get to partake in that with me that like I care about them. If you come to my home and I am going to serve you food, you can know that I have spent a really long time trying to put the best possible product in front of you that I can personally put out. And a lot of that is according to my own preference, but a lot of it is going to also be according to what I know about you. You know, I like to know these things about other people so that I can then, you know, serve them better. And my conservatism about these food products a lot of it has to do with I just want to be able to produce the best possible version of that thing that I can. And I know that there's a lot of cultural knowledge that already exists out there that I can access in order to do that. And then I'll, I'll let all these other people around me be curators of new things. And sometimes I'm a curator of new things, too. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that engaging in that process and building those relationships around it that has been valuable for me. So like, I guess ultimately my takeaway from this conversation really is just that it's good to conserve some things and make some of those things, quote, better according to whatever preferences you have. But it's also good to try some new things. But the thing that makes it most valuable is sharing it with everybody and having this collective experience of culture together that makes a lot of these experiences really worthwhile. Yeah. And I look forward to trying your conservative pizza. <laughs> and I guarantee that it's already in my mind. I guarantee there's going to be a point where we hang out and I bring a Big Mac pizza and you're, you're going to try it. I know you're going to try I it. I love Big Macs and yeah. I love pizza. So it seems like a no brainer. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and more importantly, share with your friends. The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. 
for a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org.